I forgot to introduce myself earlier, so we'll just skip it. Okay. <laughs> the power of gentle. I'm living in San Francisco, and I'm part of the Unitarian Universalist community, and I sign on to a list of baby soothers, friends and church members who say they can assist with a family's newborn son a few hours each day. I travel to the home of strangers, people I've never met, and I'm going to cuddle and rock a five-week-old, very, very big baby boy. Because of a broken arm, the baby's mother can't hold him, and the baby is bigger than a one-armed mother can manage. And Dad would help, but he's at work most of the day. I don't know why I signed on to rock a stranger's baby, I have never really seen myself as the baby holder type, ask my children. Yet, here I am. How account for experiences that just come along? And as for gentleness, I never would have said, I'm a gentle person. But on the first baby holding day, something does settle in me and I gather up the sobbing boy. Perhaps it is into the second day of sitting in the glider rocking this baby that I run out of nursery rhymes. Undaunted, I improvise the tale of the missing sock, an original opera for soprano voice inspired by one bare foot. <laughs> when the baby's mother tiptoes into the room, she catches the closing notes of my lament for the missing sock, a tune I croon in the soprano voice I crafted while living in Japan, where a high voice connotes a gentle woman. Apparently, during the quiet time my gentle rocking provided, Mom has been catching up on her work and her sleep. For the time I can give her, she is grateful, and I I'm grateful, too. Sunday afternoon, it's my third go with baby. Hard to believe that days ago, I beheld a sleeping, so a sobbing, I wish he had been sleeping, a sobbing, seemingly inconsolable baby. Nobody told me that holding this baby, his face on my shoulder, his breath sweet, his dreams sounding from his throat against my cheek could sink so deeply into my being. Yet this is happening. Hours pass as I sing, rock, pat, and run my hand up and down his back, occasionally adjusting his head when it lolls too far on my shoulder. I allow myself to feel sadness. I gave birth to three of my own screaming, hungry sons, and I can't remember ever having held them with this much patience and gentleness. My babies had not had a mother capable of gentle or with time to give herself totally to holding, soothing, and singing arias about missing socks. Yet being with this baby is more about gladness and gratitude than sadness and regret. My sons did grow up, 
and they did nurture children and pets of their own. And here I am, unexpectedly with a chance to nurture myself, to experience the gentleness called up in my heart by the child of strangers. Here I am. I am caring for my own inner life with the same care as I cradle this baby boy. And I feel in my body the power of gentle. You know, trying to take care of my inner life, my so-called self, didn't just begin while holding that baby. I had been forced seriously to take a look in, inward when outspoken friends helped me to see that I wasn't functioning very well. I take on tasks, even relationships, and fail. This was years and years ago, before marriage and children and divorce, and then lots of effective and ineffective therapy, labels slapped on and pulled off, bipolar, depressed, personality, borderline personality disorder, with symptoms like can't regulate emotions, experiencing rapid mood swings, afraid of abandonment, acting on impulse, and not very good in relationships. There were years and years of antidepressants, all of which worked until they didn't. And then in San Francisco, I became a Unitarian Universalist, a Buddhist, and began to meditate. And I began a new relationship with self-care. And I think most of us know that self-care is not the same thing as selfishness. I like what Parker Palmer, a Quaker speaker, activist, and visionary, said about his own self-care or self-love, that it was a never a selfish act. He said, it is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to our true self, he says, and give it the care it requires, we do so not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. Concern with what Parker Palmer calls the true self is central to Buddhist practice. By studying this mind, I study the self I think I am and make a relationship with it. And as a result of studying this self, I can forget the self, or if not forget it, move past it, and consciously aim to become a more moral person. Meditation is one way to study the self, and there are other ways, of course. Early in my practice, I would try not to think. I worked at shutting out thoughts, and for what I thought were good reasons. I had been doing a lot of thinking and didn't feel better or more connected as a result. But thinking is what the mind does. It spews thoughts, which begin, run their course, and end. Some thoughts replay old scenarios. Some like to plan. Some spin stories of the past or the future. And some simply create diversions. Other thoughts, often thoughts, can't even be remembered. 
More than once I have found that I am not who I think I am. I thought I was not a person who wants to go to the home of strangers and hold their baby for hours, but I did. A fuller and more adventurous life awaited me just outside the boundaries of who I thought I was. Thinking doesn't predict or dictate the self we have to be. Cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, notwithstanding. For me, meditation has become a form of self-inquiry that fuels the power of gentle. And that's because I am interested in thoughts, but don't necessarily identify with them. The Buddha says, drop the I, me, and mine. Instead of saying, I am nervous, I say, being nervous is like this. Yes, it's interesting what nervous is like. Being judgmental and critical is like this. And self-compassion, it's like this. I can be aware and interested, but not invested. Thoughts are just thoughts. They come and they go. When I was studying Zen, the teacher would say to think of myself as standing at a train station watching the trains go by. Let them go, but don't get on any. Because if you get on one, you're not there anymore. Meditating has made me aware of the I am's I apply to myself. Many of these I am's are a result of upbringing, culture, and gender. The causes and conditions that have resulted in me. And the more I have befriended the person I think I am, the more choices I have in the moment, and the less likely I am to make mindless remarks or cause discomfort to others. I can be unkind, not as often as I used to be. I am more loving and appreciative of others now, and I did not become more loving and appreciative of others by myself. And I give a lot of credit to this faith tradition, this congregation, and the connections that I have made with positive influencers, those who are not me, who do the things that I'm not going to be doing, like building homes in Tijuana, or joining groups and marching and pledging and doing things that show that they care about other people. I may not be doing all of those things, but I am with people who do those things. And I know that it is all of you who tutor me in caring and connecting. Of course, as I said, meditation is not the only way to know the self. One can stare out a window. A global organization called the School of Life recommends just that as an exercise in discovering the contents of one's own mind. In their book called School of Life, one writer says, if we do it right, staring out the window offers a way for us to be alert to the quieter suggestions and perspectives of our deeper selves.
The reader is told there can be great insights if we stop trying to be purposeful and instead respect the creative potential of reverie. Coming to know oneself, the I am's, and making a gentle relationship underscores the practice of unselfing as, as a remedy, as a gentle, powerful way to be in the world. British author and philosopher Iris Murdoch advocates unselfing as a remedy for what she calls the malady of selfing. She urges each of us to remember there are many kinds of beautiful lives each with its singular longings for and visions of beauty, goodness, and gladness. And she urges us to be attentive above all else. If loving attention, she says, is bestowed on others, then the self is changed. By attending to the world, to something outside of the self, the self is pulled outward. It stretches and grows. Attention, Murdoch says, can be a just and loving gaze directed upon another's reality. And is this, she says, the capacity to attend, to notice, which is its own kind of love. Bestowing attention on others is one of the powers of gentle. By tuning into this awareness, one becomes attentive and can more readily recognize a reality beyond one's, beyond one's own making and preference. And that is how unselfing happens. Murdoch writes that the nature, that nature too can slice into one's field of vision and like a hawk's reflection carving across an iPhone screen, pull the eyes up to the sky. She writes in The Sovereignty of Good, I am looking out of my window in an anxious and resentful state of mind, oblivious of my surroundings, brooding perhaps on some damage done to my prestige. And then suddenly I observe a hovering kestrel, that's a small, small hawk, in a moment, everything is altered. The brooding self with its hurt vanity has disappeared. There is nothing now but the kestrel. And when I return to thinking of the other matter, it seems less important. For Murdoch, the life worth leading is life that leads to others. This caring about others creates the moral self which she describes as pierced, porous, and opened. I love that. The moral self is pierced, porous, and opened. Here's a little more of Murdoch. Almost every religious, spiritual, and contemplative tradition in the history of our species, when stripped of its mystical and counter-scientific aspects, holds at its center an ethic of love. Does that sound familiar? But also central to almost every tradition, especially of the West, is a dangerous warping of love in the hands of the self. Most commonly known as the golden rule 
It mistakes the reality of the self for the only reality, taking one's own wishes, desires, and longings as universal and presuming that the other shares these precisely, negating the sovereign reality of the other, negating the possibility that a very different person might want something very different done to them. Kind of like the story of the crow who cares so much about the fish's welfare that he scoops him out of the water, carries him up to the branch of the tree where he will be safe. Crow means well, but fish might have something to say about it. A great lesson here in the difference between intention and impact. Think about the lesson in the story that we saw today. The rabbit listened. I think of this story as a story about how to relate to others and how I relate to myself. Either way is an example of the power of gentle. I imagine all the animals could be read as part of Taylor or Taylor's or my mind. Like chicken who can read, it's my own irritation over the collapse of some enterprise I put a lot of energy into. Rock! Or like bear, if I choose to encourage my anger. Or like elephant. As I consider stomping on someone else's creation. Or I could plan to do a lot of blaming. Or like ostrich, stick my head in the sand, pretend that nothing happened, nothing is sad, nothing went wrong. And there is my inner rabbit at hand to comfort me with self-compassion to provide the power of gentle with its patience and gentle acceptance. Rabbit could be read as a deep, conscious in-breath followed by a satisfying exhale or as the pause, providing time to consider how to respond rather than to immediately react and perhaps regret it. As for the power of gentle, it doesn't try to replace the power of effective action, but does suggest that we are more powerful if we know the self and then as Iris Murdoch put it, we know how and when to practice unselfing so as not to mistake the reality of ourself for the realities of all other people. And just as in the poem Love by Chislaw Milosh that Mary read, love means to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things for you are only one thing among many. And whoever sees that way heals his heart from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. And I remember that baby, and I think you heard about that who slept so peacefully in the arms of a person who didn't know she could be so gentle. And now my wish is that with love at our center, 
And as we practice justice and equity, we embrace the power of gentle and commit ourselves to being pierced, porous, and opened so that we may better care for others. May it be so, and while it is being so, let it be a dance we do. And please rise if that is what you want to do and sing number 311 in the gray hymnal or follow the words on the screen.